you'd open your Bible to Ephesians 1. Again, we're going to look at verses 18 and part of verse 19. Back up in verse 15, and we'll read down through the 23rd verse. Paul says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's the specific things that he begins to pray. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this morning I want to continue looking at the things that Paul prayed for these Ephesian believers, the things that we do well to pray for ourselves and for one another, what the Lord would have us to really and truly know about him, our salvation, What Christ has done to secure it, the hope that brings into our life, and the power that is operative in our lives even now. So pray with me that the Lord would show us these things. Our Father in heaven, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come and ask you to open the eyes of our understanding. The very things that we're studying, Lord, we pray you would do for us. We're undeserving. Very often we are unprofitable servants, but Lord, we ask for more grace. We appeal to your mercy, and we do so in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the particular things we're going to look at this morning, that we would know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, In the exceeding greatness of his power, which is at work in those of us who believe. Yesterday, my boys and I went out to my parents' house to mow their yard. It's one of my new privileges. And they have in their front yard two bur oak trees. And you know what bur oak trees are, right? They're, they're the trees that have the, the big acorns, or if you prefer the East Texan acorn. Um, every time that we mow, 
I think in my mind, I need to pick some of these up, take them home, plant them, and see if I can get some to grow. I never have done it just yet. Bur oaks are slow-growing trees. I did a little bit of research. They are some of the slowest oak trees in growth. And that is proven to be true in my experience watching these two trees in my parents' yard grow. They just don't seem like they're as big as they ought to be for as long as they've been there. But yet, or perhaps it's because they are so slow-growing that they are some of the strongest and most dense wood that you can find. And so these trees, I'm guessing now, are probably 10 to 15 years old. They're not all that tall, but they do produce a lot of acorns that are not the greatest thing to have to mow over the top of. But I remember when my dad planted those trees. He planted them as saplings. And he did what most of us do when we plant a tree that we really want to to flourish and grow. He staked them out. He ensured that the wind wasn't going to blow them over or break them off at a very young and early age. Uh, He took great care of them, even had little cages around them for a time. Now they're beyond all of that. They're well-established, and they are slow-growing. So as I thought about that yesterday and even this morning, I was thinking that that's a great illustration of what is happening or taking place here in these verses that Paul is describing to us. Christianity, the Christian life, is a slow grow. It produces fruit all the way through. Some, sometimes we are in great seasons of fruit production, sometimes not so much. But in reality, what Paul is doing here in this prayer, this one of the greatest of Paul's prayers, just like with a young tree, you stake it out and you care for it and you do all of these things. That's what this prayer is. Paul is staking these young Christians, remember, The most mature of them have only been believers for about a decade. And they certainly haven't been privileged to have the entirety of the word of God that you and I have. Their privilege was in the fact that Paul himself ministered among them for several years. But in this prayer, after he unveiled to them and made known to them all of the great truth in the first 14 verses... And really showed them of God's love and activity towards them and showed them their great potential. He puts all of that out very clearly. And he says, God has done this before the foundation of the world. Christ did this by shedding his blood for you. The shedding of that blood will commemorate at the end of this service in the Lord's Supper. Then he told them the spirit of God has come alongside of you and made application of these truths in your life. And so here are these young Christians still living in Ephesus, still in the world, still walking amongst the same people, still living in the same places. But yet now they are vastly different from the world around them. They have set all of that aside and now they are clinging by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ the author of their salvation. 
And Paul here is praying for them. This is what I am asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to do for you. And it's all unveiling that he would make known to you more and more. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom. We saw that last week and and we approached that as this was Paul's request or desire that the Lord would not give them the spirit initially of the salvation that had already happened. But that the Lord would give them more and more of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Which really points to one thing. If we are to grow rightly in Christian thought, our Christian thinking will be born out of what we know of God. It can't be the other way around. We can't import things into the scripture. We can't import things from our experience or even the way that we hope things would be or or the ways that we hope God would act toward us or the ways that we hope God will act toward our unbelieving friends and family. And bring all of these things and try to settle them in the scriptures. Rather, what happens is we see the God of the Bible and everything grows out of that. Our mind is shaped and formed and fashioned and renewed and washed based upon the truth that we find in scriptures. Many times we just have to set things that we have held for sometimes years. We just have to set them aside. And say, this doesn't correspond or relate to the truth as I see it in Scripture. I've had to do that several times in my walk with Christ. It's not easy. It's not easy to believe and think and hold and teach and even preach certain things. Sometimes for years, decades. And then come to the realization that you haven't been exactly right on this or that. To lay it aside. It takes a lot of grace. It takes a lot of grace that God given to you or to me to be able to do that. But back to these Ephesians. Here are these young Christians. Here is this young church. They have this great immense knowledge of God and salvation. And so Paul is praying for them. He's building a hedge around them. And he's asking the Lord, and even as he's asking, he's teaching them. These are the kinds of things that you need to be praying the Lord would do for you. If you get over into the fourth chapter, which I suspect we'll get there in a few months, and we get down into verse 12, notice that Paul says, in, excuse me, verse 13, he's speaking here of the gifts that are given to the church by Christ. For the edifying of the body. And he says until we all come to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. In the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things into him. Who is the head, Christ. That's the goal for every Christian. To grow up into the fullness of Christ. To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How are we going to get there? 
What types of things must God do for us to get us more and more day by day, week by week, year by year into this conformity to the person of Jesus Christ? Are you far from being conformed to the image of Christ? If there was a scale and on the right side, this was conformity to Christ and on the left side was your progress thus far, where would you suppose you are? I think most of us in humility would say we're very low. We're, we're very close to the bottom. We have a long way to go and much room for improvement and much growth. How are we going to get there? It's through the things that Paul prays for these Ephesians. These things that we pray for ourselves that close the gap. That narrow the gap from our lack of conformity to Christ and gets us more and more by grace and by the help of the Spirit conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Let me say one more thing before we move on. This prayer, all of these peculiar petitions of this prayer are things that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory want to give you. Do you want them? These are things that the Father of glory can dispense and give. The real question is not can he or will he. The question is do I have a heart that even yearns and wants these things? If I'm looking back at this picture of where I am on this progress of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ, and I realize that I'm very far from where I want to be, is there a yearning in my heart and in my mind that even desires the thing Paul prays for? If there's not, the best way to deal with this is to be honest with yourself, and if there is not, beg God to give you the desires. Just ask him and in honesty before him. Say my heart, my hands are so entrenched into the things of the world. These desires, if they're present with me at all, they're very small, like little candles. Would you increase them in my heart and mind so that they rise to the surface and these things that Paul prays for become the very longing and desire of my heart? Again, Paul says here first that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. If he doesn't enlighten the eyes of our understanding, they will not be enlightened. No reading of books, no reading of commentaries, no matter how great they may be, no matter how truthful they are, no amount of sitting in church services, no amount of listening to preaching, hearing preaching. The fact comes down to this. If God doesn't do it, it will not be done. Our responsibility is to put ourselves in the places and among the people in submission to the word of God where these petitions can be answered 
and the means that God would use to answer them would be in place. You know, it's one thing to ask God for the right types of things. It's another thing altogether to submerge yourself and immerse yourself into an environment that God would actually give you those things. We're studying in in our first hour the confession, the London Confession of Faith. A couple of weeks ago we looked at how God has ordained the means by which he makes known all of the blessings that come to us in Christ. Our responsibility is to ensure that we are utilizing those means as best we can. Things like prayer, reading the scripture, fellowshipping with the saints, observing communion, the ordinance of baptism, all of these means the Lord has given. If these are our great desires and we're going to place ourselves into the context in which they find their greatest expression. So the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now notice after this phrase that you may know there are three things that Paul desires and really that the spirit of God desires that we would know. And the knowledge here that he speaks of is not a casual passing knowledge. But a a more deep and abiding real knowledge. And he expresses those three things in this way. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power. Notice that in each of these three requests, it is his calling, his inheritance, his power that are being made known. These things are qualified by the hope of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance and the exceeding greatness of his power. These are the things that the Lord would have us to know. So let's look at the first. When Paul says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. It's interesting We've read these verses a couple of times in the second chapter. One of the ways that Paul described the Ephesian Christians prior to salvation is being without hope in the world. Now he is praying that the Lord would make us know and understand the hope of his calling. Those once living with no hope have been given hope. That's true of you, and it's true of me. The writer of Hebrews in the sixth chapter in verse 19 says, It is this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, which is both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. One of the great things of Scripture, one of the ways that the Lord has has detailed for us the fruit of our salvation There seem to be three that keep rising to the top. Faith, hope, and love. Hope is always in the mix of the things that the Lord wants us to know. Everything about this world that we live in would rob you of the hope that the Lord wants you to be assured of. 
Everything in this world would see the great hope that we have because it's so contrary to the hopeless world around us and would seek to remove it by any means possible. That's why Paul says, I pray that God in mercy would give you a full realization and a full knowledge of the hope that you have in him. Hope in the scriptures is really used in two different ways. I think both of them are applicable here. It's used objectively and subjectively. I'm going to give you two verses where this is expressed. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 5, if you flip over a couple of pages in your Bible, Colossians 1 5, you'll notice how this mirrors what we've been reading here in Ephesians. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ. And of your love for all the saints. And then we get to verse 5. Because of. Because of the hope. Which is laid up for you. In heaven. Of which you heard before in the word of truth. The gospel which has come to you. As it, is, as it has in all the world. So Paul is here speaking of the objective hope, the hope laid up for you. It is there. It is real. It is for you. You will in some degree have it now, certainly more fully then. But then the scriptures also speak of hope in a more subjective sense. And this is the way we most often relate to it. It's that hope that we're yearning after. The hope that that boils up and rises to the surface within us when this world really begins to press us. It's where we turn when things in this life get hard. The hope of heaven, the hope of this world and life being temporary. Peter expresses it this way. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a great verse. Mark it in your Bible. You'll need it. You're going to need this verse where Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Take all of these wondering thoughts, these doubting thoughts that the world has sown into your heart, into your mind. Gird them all up. Bring them together and be sober. That means to be of a sound mind. In other words, what Peter is saying is do not let your mind run away with you. It will if you let it. All kind of anxieties and fears and distresses and pains. And we know that there are myriad of those in this life. If you don't deal with them the way Peter says to deal with them, they will carry you off captive. So how do you deal with them? We know they're a reality. Peter says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Certainly we live in grace now, but there is a whole nother, another measure of grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When this world and all of its anxieties, fears and distresses are put into their proper place, 
And our hope now has become a reality. Hope in this in this respect is an expectant attitude toward the certainty of future bliss with God through Christ throughout all eternity. Now let me ask you, even as I ask myself, what in this life could we be called of God to go through or to experience that this type of hope will not see us through? When we know that this world is passing, it's temporal, it's reserved for fire. Our life in this world is is like a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. Like the flower or the grass of the field that withers in the heat. Not making light of the real hardships that the Lord calls us to walk through. But what I am saying is that this hope according to Peter and according to the scripture, is what you can set your mind on that will see you through. The reality that everything God has said to us in the scriptures will indeed come to pass. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you again. This is the hope that we have, but notice it's attached to the calling of God, that you may know the hope of His calling. This hope springs from the call of God in your life. This hope comes in no other way. If you and I are not the called of God, then we do not have the hope of God. If you and I are not the called of God, we have no foundation upon which to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us. If we haven't experienced the grace of God in conversion and having been brought to faith in Christ, then we have no real recourse to look to look into the future and base our hope upon what is to come. Paul says that you may know the hope of your calling. What's he referencing here about this call? The scriptures give us two different types of calls in the in two different type of calls in the scripture. The general call and the particular call. The general call is what's happening right now. The gospel is preached, it's preached to every person. Every person is bid to come to Christ. Every person hears the same words. It enters into the same ear. Whether or not it makes it into the spiritual ear depends on whether or not God has issued the effectual or particular call. Notice that this is not just a nice thought. It is a thought that is expressed in Romans chapter 8 in that golden chain of salvation. Sometimes you hear it referred to. I'm going to start reading in verse 28 because the 28th verse we know so well. Romans 8. We know all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called. How often do we read over those words? To those who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. So this calling that is referenced by Paul throughout the scripture is a link in the chain of salvation. If you cut this link and you remove the calling of God out of the chain of salvation, the chain of salvation is left in a weakened, inoperative condition. Paul says that this is the hope of his calling. The call of God comes through the preaching of the gospel generally. Then the Holy Spirit makes application to the heart of the particular truths that have been preached. If you're saved this morning, then you have received and responded to this particular call of God. Sometimes this call comes with more fanfare than at other times. You children who are being raised in Christian homes, this calling comes to you very often in a more gentle manner. I don't know if you fully realize it now, but how blessed you are to be raised in a Christian home by parents who love you and are teaching you the truth about who God is, who Christ is, what he has done for you. Sometimes this call is heard by the prodigal as he's feeding himself on the husks of the world in the hog pen, like the parable we have. The point being, it doesn't really matter the context. Every saved person has experienced this call of God. Perhaps as you look back through your own experience and remember how the Lord dealt with you. And how the Lord brought you to a point in time where you could do nothing but respond to him. You could do nothing but bow your knee in submission to him. You could do nothing but answer the call that has come to you. It's a call that you couldn't refuse. The offer of salvation, just too sweet and too good. The Lord had opened your eyes to it and he has shown you who Jesus is. He has shown you your sin and the just condemnation that was burning against you. But now there is this person and more importantly, the activity of this person that removes all of that anger that was bent towards you away. The call of God says, come to Christ. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come. You'll find rest for your souls. If your soul is tormented, if you're agitated, if you have no hope, then the remedy is to come to Jesus and come to Christ quickly. Make haste and come to him. This is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, verses that we'll get to in time. 
He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. This hope is shared by all Christians. My hope is the same as yours. Yours is the same as mine. Because we all have fellowship in Jesus Christ. Again, Peter is helpful in the first epistle, first chapter. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I have been raised to life and given a living hope. It is a hope that nothing in this perverse world can take from you. But can we flip that point over? Can we look at the other side of this? For those who are not in Christ, you have no hope. And nothing in this perverse world can give it to you. The world can't take it from a Christian and it can't give it to a non-Christian. Search for it however you will. You will not find it. Do anything your heart desires. You will not find the type of hope that the Christian has until you come to Christ. And once you've come to Christ, nothing can remove it from you. So Paul says, I pray, I'm hoping, I'm asking the Lord to enlighten your understanding so that you would know the hope of his calling. Let's look quickly at the second part of this. And that you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There's two ways that that people have dealt with this throughout history. It's either... God and the riches of his glory is our inheritance. We are inheriting God and everything he has to offer, which is really the hope that's already been spoken of. Or we and the great salvation he has given us are his inheritance. It seems kind of odd to think of it that way, but I think that's really at the heart of what Paul is saying. We need to be reminded, and let me, let me remind you, even as I'm reminding you, that this is the indicative section of this epistle. What does that mean? We're being told here things that we need to know so that later we'll know how to apply them. Think of this. As Christians, we are the dearly beloved children of God in Christ. And I love what Ian Hamilton says. He says, we are precious to God because we are the blood brothers of his eternal son. Amen. Sometimes in humility we shy away from thinking that we are the special possession of God and that he is rejoicing over us. He is loving us. But notice what Peter says. He says you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. On Wednesday evening, we looked at a verse in Malachi where those who feared the Lord rallied together 
And they began to speak to one another of the things of God. What was God's response to that? Do you remember? You can look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I'll paraphrase, but the Lord took notice. And he said, they are mine. They're mine. There is nothing greater than for you and I to know that we are the very own special people of God. We are in his possession. Ian Hamilton has also said this. It is a wonderful truth that God himself is the inheritance of his people. Even more wonderfully, if even unfathomably, Paul tells us that believers are God's inheritance. This thought is almost unimaginable. That we are the heritage or the inheritance of God. And remember, Paul is praying that you would really know this. This speaks to the depth of relationship, not just all the benefits that we have flowing to us from God through Christ. But now God looks at us as his inheritance. Mind-boggling. When you think of the mass of contradictions, that's the way one theologian describes humanity, being a mass of contradictions. When you think of all of that which resides in our heart, now after redemption, after having come to faith in Christ... God would say over us that we are his inheritance. It speaks to the worth of the Christian. Not an inherent worth, but a worth that has been given him. A worth that God has bestowed upon him. And then the third part. What else would Paul have us to know? What else would the Spirit of God have us to know? The exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. If the call refers to the past and the inheritance points to the future, then the power must concern the present. The exceeding greatness of His power Toward us who believe. Just have one thing to say about this. Then I'm going to close. We're going to observe communion. We're going to come back to this next week. The one thing that I have to say is really a quotation from Charles Hodge. I can't say it any better than he has said it. In referencing salvation. He says this. Salvation is no mere moral reformation affected by rational considerations. Nor was it self-wrought change, but one due to the almighty power of God. You and I did not come to Christ through a great moral reformation. That's not what salvation is. You and I did not come to Christ by changing ourselves or any amount of discipline enforced upon ourselves. You and I came to Christ due and owing only to the almighty power of God operating upon us.
And isn't it fitting as we look at this that next week we're going to come back together and we're going to see this again. But let me read these verses that you may know the exceeding greatness of his power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is operative in the believer now. What a thought. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these truths, and we ask again, Lord, that you would make them a reality in our lives. Where we don't just want to study these words, we want to take them as our own. And pray that you would give us these very things. We stand in need of them. We need the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. We need to know more of the hope of the calling that you have given. We need to know more of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And certainly we need to know more of the exceeding greatness of your power at work in us who believe. Father, as we turn now to observe communion, I pray that you would help each of us to do an examination of our heart. To see if there are things there that need to be repented of, confessed. If there are things there, Lord, that we need to deal with before we come to the table. We're thankful for this ordinance that reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Help us now as we partake of this ordinance to remember the words of the scripture that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We pray your blessing now upon this time and we do so in Christ's name. Amen.